Well, if you've got your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn to Galatians. If you grab a pew Bible in front of you as well, if you don't have your own. And I should announce this more often. If, if you, you ever come or, you, or if, a, if a visitor ever comes and they don't have their own Bible or you don't have your own Bible, we do have Bibles in the back, nice ones, that we want to give away to people. So um, those are there. And if you ever find yourself without a Bible or, or someone that you see doesn't have one, um, we have good, good Bibles in the back that we'd love to give away. So um, you can make sure to note that that's an opportunity for you. While you're turning to Galatians, I want to begin this morning with a couple verses from the Old Testament just to set the stage for us. So we're going to talk about the heart. Um, and one verse is from Proverbs. It's Proverbs 4.23. This verse says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. So keep or guard your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Um, now, we're going to talk about the heart, and so we need to clarify what the Bible means when it says heart, because it's not exactly what we generally mean in English when we say heart. Um, the heart in the Bible is your inner person, your whole inner person. Um, it's your, your core personality, who you really are. It's, it's certainly not just the medical heart, like the, the blood pumping thing, obviously. And it's not like we tend to think in English uh, as a, the heart opposed to the head. We, we tend to, to classify those into two realms, think the head is the rational part of me, the heart is the emotional part of me. Uh, but biblically, the heart encompasses all that. It's your, your whole being, your thoughts, your emotions, your spirituality, everything that's your you, your, your heart. And in Proverbs 4, 23, it says, guard your heart, keep your heart, because out of your heart flows the springs of life. Now, to, to round the picture out a bit, there's another verse in Jeremiah 17, verse 9. It says, the heart is deceitful, above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's a much, uh, much more pessimistic view of the heart, maybe more realistic view of the heart. The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So not, not again, don't think, uh, don't think our culture, don't think, this is saying emotions are desperately sick. Who can understand? No, no. He's saying the heart, the whole inner being, your inner man, who you are deep down is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can know the heart? So the Bible gives us this picture of the heart, the inner man, and it's, 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 uh, it's not simple. Because the heart, who you are deep down is complicated. And, and many of us don't understand ourselves very well. It takes a lot of work to try to understand yourselves. You, you, you don't know your own motives. You know, there's, there's layers to yourself and the reasons why you do things and, 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 the, and the way you act out in this world that you don't fully comprehend. It, who can know the heart? Uh, one of the problems that, that we encounter as we go through life is that there is there's a part of us, sometimes a very big part of ourselves, that we haven't come to terms with, that we don't know. Um, 
a, a picture that came to mind for me this week. It's, it's like we are going through life and we think that we are uh, the only pilot in the airplane. We think that we're in the plane and we're flying the plane and we set the direction. We say, this is where I'm going. But really, behind the curtain next to you, there's another pilot. And his controls can override yours. So, so you can be sitting there in the, in the pilot's seat and you think, I am going to... No, <laughs> I am going to... Uh, I'm going to lose weight this year. Okay? Or, or I am going to have more patience. And you set the course of your airplane. And you do some stuff for a while and you're feeling around and you look up and you think, how did I get here? No, no, I'm setting the course for, for uh, more self-control this year. And all of a sudden, your plane is over in this place where you've always been before. You say, what's going on? It's like I don't even have control of the plane. And you don't. Because you think that you, that you can just make a decision and you can go in one direction, but really there's this whole iceberg of your life that you don't even know. It's your heart. And your heart can seize control and direct you and you don't understand it. Your heart is deceitful. Now, it's not always bad, right? Sometimes your heart can grab control of the airplane and keep you from crashing. But sometimes it can make you crash. And that's what's happening with the Galatians in Galatians chapter 4. Well, I mean, the whole book, really, the situation. See, see, Paul's been writing to them, and so far in the book, we've gotten very, very clear argument, very clear explanation as to why they should believe Paul when he says, the gospel is this. You are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone plus nothing. You don't have to do anything else. Okay, that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, believe me. But these other teachers have come in and they've said, no, 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 you've got to also become a Jew. You've also got to get circumcised and keep the food laws and all these outward religious cultural things. You've got to do that too. And so far in the book, Paul's given good, clear reasons why they should believe him. In chapter 1, he said, here's my testimony. I received this gospel as a vision from Jesus himself. Chapter 2, he says, and then I told the apostles and they agreed with me. We were all on the same page. In chapter 3, he says, and when I told you, you believed and received the Holy Spirit. You remember how it started? It was by faith alone. And then he says, and the whole Old Testament says the same story. Uh, Abraham believed by faith alone. The law was given to show us that we are sinners and we could never save ourselves. And it all pointed to Christ that we'd be adopted as sons. And here in chapter 4, he said again, the whole point was that the Spirit would be sent into our hearts by faith, that we might become a son and daughter of God. He's given very clear reasons, very clear explanations. And, and the issue is now, why aren't they listening? It's the Apostle Paul. He's reasoning with them. He's giving them clear explanation, saying, your head should be convinced with all that I've told you, but, but there's something else going on. There's a deeper thing going on under the surface that, that is steering you away from the true gospel, and you don't even understand why you're doing it. He says the issue is that you don't know your hearts. And so what we have here in our passage, Galatians 4, verses 12 through 20, is the Apostle Paul shining a spotlight now on the hearts, the unknown motivation as to why the Galatians are leaving the true gospel. And what I want to do as we look at this is follow the procedure that he, he does for this heart surgery and hopefully learn how we can apply it to ourselves that we might be able 
uh, to work and know ourselves more. So Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. So we'll stop today. And what I want to show you this morning as we look at this again, going through it, is that as Paul now gets at the heart of the Galatians, he makes three major moves. First, he clears away the non-issues. Uh, then he asks hard questions. And then he deals with the root issues. So let's, let's dive in here. First, clears away the non-issues. This is his procedure for heart surgery. Clear away the non-issues. In verse 12, he begins by stating again the core issue. He says, become as I am, for I have become as you are. I think the, the New Living Translation nails the sense of what he says here. This is how the New Living bring, puts it. He says, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things, for I become, like you Gentiles, free from those laws. It expands it, but it gives you the sense. He's saying, this is the whole point of the book, the whole point of the letter. Paul's saying, become like me, because I become like you. I was a Jew. I, I kept all the laws. I was the Jew of Jews. I was the, the prize Hebrew, number one. And I gave all that up. And I, I gave up all that law following, all that, the religious customs, so that I could become like you and just preach the simple gospel of faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now you, Gentiles, become like me. Don't, don't think you have to be a Jew to get saved. Just believe the gospel. Live in freedom. This is the main issue. It's what the whole book is about up to this point. And it should be really clear by now. Uh, and yet, because I, I think the Galatians didn't know their own hearts, and they did what we do, and, and, and they were beginning to devise a strategy, even subconsciously, to take that very clear issue and to dodge it because they didn't want to deal with it. Um, it. It seems like what they were, what they were doing was, was they were, were saying to one another, you know what the real issue is? I think the real issue is that Paul is angry with us because we weren't nice to him when he visited. You know, he's saying all this stuff about justification and faith, but, but I think what's really going on, I think Paul's just mad at us because we weren't nice enough to him. Now, now, where am I getting that? Well, I'm getting that from what he says here in, in this verse. In the second part of verse 12, he, 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 he sort of out of nowhere has to say, you did me no wrong. He, he goes back to the beginning. He says, you did me no wrong. You know that when I showed up um, and I preached to you, you know, even, even though you should have despised me because I was weak and I was sick and I was a burden to you, you didn't. You welcomed me. You lavished attention on me. He says, you even would have gouged out your eyes for me, which may have been a, you know, maybe he had an eye problem and they would have did it, or it may just be a, 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 just a, high, a, a big exaggerated way to say, you would have done anything for me. 
See, what he's doing is he's clearing away this non-issue. He's saying, but let's not get caught up in this this little trick that your heart's trying to play to, to make this about a, just a personality thing or, or that my, my feelings were just hurt because if you do that, then you could just brush it away, right? You, you, you've, you've lived through this, right? Where there's, there's a real substantial issue and someone doesn't want to deal with that issue and so they make it about a non-issue. Paul's saying to the Galatians, you've got to deal with the gospel. You're departing from the gospel and the Galatians don't want to deal with that. And so saying, you know what it is? I think Paul's just got his feelings hurt. I think Paul's just upset that we weren't nice enough to him when he visited, and so now he's taking it out on us through this letter when he sees that we like these other people who are being very nice to us. And Paul recognizes, I think, that that's a non-issue, that that's how our hearts maneuver. And so he begins by trying to clear that away. We do this. We, we all do this. Because it's hard to deal with our hearts. So if you show up at, at work or for, for an appointment a little late and you've got a friend there and they just kind of chide you a little bit, give you a little, little hard time for showing up late, then you move on with the meeting. But, but you, can't, you can't let go of that. You just feel so bad. You feel so ashamed. Uh, you, you don't deal with the fact that, you know, that, that you're ashamed. You make it about your friend. How dare that person make fun of me for being late? How dare they bring that up in front of the group that I showed up late and you get mad at your friend? Instead of dealing with why why do I feel so bad about being late? Or you you know something doesn't work right at work. You get um, you know you get reprimanded by the boss or you don't get a promotion that you wanted and and you don't look at yourself. You say oh the boss is just playing favorites. You know, the boss is just a jerk, and you put it out there. You, ex- you, you, you put it outside of yourself, externalize it to someone else, because you don't want to look at yourself. If your child disobeys, and you blow up in anger, you walk away and you think, if only they would obey. And you don't say, why did I blow up at that? See, there's all these non-issues that are easier to go to because they keep the blame far from us and we don't have to look at our hearts. And Paul begins by doing this very important step of clearing away the non-issue. You can't stay on the surface. You need to go deeper. And that's what he does next. And how do you go deeper? You ask hard questions. After Paul clears away the non-issues and, and brings the focus back to the real issue, he begins asking hard questions. He begins asking heart questions, questions about our hearts. In verse 15, what does he ask? He says, what then has become of the blessing you felt? What's become of your blessedness? I like how the NIV puts it. It says, what happened to all your joy? It's a good question. This is a thinking question. He's, he's calling them to slow down and to ask a very hard question. So think back to that first visit when I came to see you. So think back to, to what you felt then. Think back to what you experienced. That was a great time, wasn't it? You, you felt great. You had joy. You had blessedness. You, you welcomed me with open arms. You, you would give your eyes for me. Things were wonderful then. Okay, think about how things are now. Think about how do you feel 
do, do you have that same sense of joy? Do you have that same sense of blessedness? How does your life compare now between what, what we have now and what you had then? Do, do you see how this is a hard question? This is a, a thinking question? It's not just a fill-in-the-blank question. It's not a simple yes or no. It's going to take some time to work through this. Maybe sit down with a piece of paper and, and, and think, what has happened to my joy? Why am I not feeling now what I felt then? What are the events that led to this point now? He's asking him a difficult question. You've got to think through it. You've got to process. You've got to find that, that string and start pulling on it. Say, so where is this going to lead? It's not enough to just stay at the surface and say, I feel worse now than I did then. He asks the why question. Or the what's happened. Why? Well, what's happened to your joy? It's hard. It's hard to get to know yourself. That's why we ignore the hard questions. When you don't get that promotion, and you want to blame the boss for playing favorites, it's hard to step back from that and then to say, why? Why? Is there something in me? Is there some attitude or some behavior that might be keeping me from that? You know, the boss's favorite playing aside, is there anything in me that leads to that? Or that, you know, the, the one about showing up late, you, you, you get to the meeting late and you get made fun of, and, and instead of blaming your friends, how dare my friend make fun of me in front of those people, you begin to ask, why? Why does that bother me? You realize that doesn't bother everyone. You, it doesn't, probably doesn't bother your friend at all, and that's why they made fun of you. But you have to, why? Why does it bother me? What happened to me that I could go into the meeting feeling fine and then now I'm just loaded down with shame and anger and resentment? What happened? Begin asking the hard questions. The second question he says here, he says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Same sort of question, right? You've got to think about that. Paul says, have I become your enemy? So you're in Galatians, you're, you're sitting there, you're thinking, whoa, is that what's happened? Has Paul really become my enemy? So how did I feel about Paul before? I love that guy. He, he brought the, the truth. He changed my life. He's, he, you know, and, and now I, I do. I do feel some resentment toward him. I don't know if I'd call him my enemy, but I, 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 don't, you know, I don't trust him. I feel differently about them. What has happened? Well, he says it's because he's just told the truth. Is that really what's happened? Is it just the truth? That's made me feel like that. Why would the truth make me not like Paul? And you begin to pull on that string. Try to figure out what is going on in my heart. There's something there, right? There's something below the surface. If you want to know what's going on in your heart, at any given time, you need to ask these sort of questions. These questions that take more than a second to answer. Questions that are going to take some solitude or maybe some feedback from a trusted person. And you ask yourself, why am I so anxious about that meeting on Monday? Why, why does that have such a hold on me right now? Wh why am I avoiding that particular person? And don't just say, because I don't like them. Say, well, why? What, what's bugging me about that person? What, or about this one? Why, why is it that I always have to be right? Maybe you don't have to ask yourself that question. Maybe your spouse asks you that question. But maybe you should listen. Why? Why do I have to be right? Or why do I hate confrontation? Or why do I love confrontation? You know, whatever you are, ask these questions. Why is it that bad drivers upset me so much? 
Just figure out what's going on in your life and then start pulling on that string. Why? 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 Why do I watch TV at night instead of talking to my spouse? Why do I do that? If you ask those questions, you begin pulling on the thread, it will lead you eventually to a deeper issue, a more root level issue. And once you get there, then you can deal with them. And that's what we see Paul doing here. So he's cleared away the non-issue. He's asked some searching questions. And then in verse 17, he gets to their particular root issue here. And this is just astonishing. Uh, So verse 17 here, we see the real issue. He says, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. That's from the, the English Standard Version that I'm reading. And I think they over-translate a little bit, but if you're reading other versions, you'll see it says things like, uh, they, uh, they are zealous for you, or they are eagerly pursuing you, almost like they're, they're courting you, they're trying to win you over, um, but they're doing this to shut you out that you might be zealous for them, that you might eagerly seek them. He's saying, here it is, we've, we've gotten down low now, and Galatians, I'm telling you, this is the reason why you're believing their message and not mine. It's because they are zealous for you, because they want you to be zealous for them. They are eagerly pursuing you. They are making you feel wanted. They are stroking your ego, because they want you to turn right around and stroke their ego back. They are there trying to get you to like them by making you feel liked. He's saying, you know, all that important theological instruction, all that stuff in the first four chapters is very important, all that argumentation. But let me tell you, folks, the real reason why you're not listening to me is because these guys are making you feel wanted. That's a powerful motivation. I remember when I was trying to figure out which seminary to go to uh, when I was choosing seminaries, there was one particular seminary, I'd, I'd, I'd called them for some information, and then literally it was like every day after that, I got something in the mail from them with, with a handwritten signature. You know, and I got a phone call every once in a while saying, hey, how can we pray for you as you're searching for a seminary? And I'm telling you, that was powerful. It's like, wow, these guys want me. Um, and, 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 and it's not always wrong, right? Verse 18, he says, it's always good to be made much of or to be zealous or to be pursued for a good purpose, Okay, it's fine. It's fine to be wanted. It's fine to pursue people. That's, that's okay if it's for a good reason. But this thing in Galatia, this is not a good reason. So Paul's saying that this whole debate about justification, circumcision, what's really going on is that the false teachers, deep down in their hearts, they want to feel special. They want to feel special. They want people to like them. They want people to make much of them. And so what are they doing? They're, they're setting up this system with all these rules. You know, you got to be like us if you want to be in. And then they're pursuing you, saying, here, just follow these rules and you'll be in. And they're making much of you so that you'll come join up with their little group and then they'll feel special because you're their people. This whole thing boils down to, to, to them saying, you scratch my itch, I'll scratch yours. And we'll make each other feel good because we're pursuing each other. I mean, did you see how, how wicked the heart is? There's this whole iceberg of stuff underneath the surface that is directing the decision-making of the Galatians. Paul's given them the clear gospel, and they can't accept it because there's something going on in their hearts that says, yeah, but these guys make me feel special. And so I'm going to go with them. 
if you really want to make progress in life, you see how important it is to get down to the heart and say, is that what's going on with me? Is, is that what's going on? I, I thought that I was just being discerning and listening to the good teaching and figuring out what was right, but all along, I'm trying to fly my plane. I got this co-pilot here, the heart that's saying, let's go to these guys because they make you feel special. Yeah, I like that. That's a root problem. And like the Galatians, that may not be your root problem. I'll tell you, that's one of mine. That's one that I need to struggle against. That may not be your root problem, but you've got them. Your heart, Jeremiah 17, 9 applies to you. Your heart is deceitful. That's the sort of stuff that's going on inside of you. And, and, and to find that out, it's not good to just, to just say, well, that's, that's down there and I'm just going to ignore it and I'm going to go on with my life. No, you need to figure out what's going on down there so you can deal with it and achieve some victory over it. So back to the, some of the examples we've been working through, that, that late to the meeting, right? So you're, you're late to the meeting, um, your friend makes fun of you, you feel all ashamed, later on you get some space, you think, why did that bother me so much? What is going on? Why do I feel so bad when someone p- points out that, I'm, that I've been late? You can pull on that a little bit. And, and maybe it is that when you, you, you think about it for a while, you think, oh, but that's, yeah, I got that from my family. We were, we were always, you know, my, my family just always valued punctuality and that was the most important thing and, and people who were late got made fun of and despised and you just looked down at people who were late and so somewhere in your life, in your heart, you internalize this and though you profess to believe at a certain level the gospel that you are justified by faith alone, at some part of your heart you're living as if you're justified by your punctuality. Because in your heart you're thinking, if I'm late, I'm worthless. Because that's what my family taught me. If I'm on time, then I'm a good person. Okay, that, that's a heart-level issue. You, you thought your friend was being a jerk for making fun of you. No, what's really going on is that you've got some stuff to deal with in your belief that being on time somehow makes you a better person. Okay. Now, I'm not going to go through a bunch of examples because I don't, I don't want you to think that I've got all the answers. What you need to do is to work through it. We are complicated beings. Our hearts are many-layered, multifaceted, and deceitful. And so you need to work through it. And I want to give you opportunities to do that. Uh, the, the discussion guide that you've got in your, your handout this week uh, is intended to help you walk through that process on your own to get some ideas and have some tools for working on that. We can work on this in small groups. If you come to the Monday or Wednesday night group, you'll get to hear a little bit more about my problems. I'm going to work through it for you as an example. So here's some of the stuff. Here's one issue that I pulled the thread, and here's what I found. Um, this is something you can work through with a close friend or in a small group or um, talk to me if you want to work through it together. But it's important, okay? Now here's the, here's the close, closing thing that you've you got to hear, though, as we do this. You, I'm not going to tell you the answers or give you all the middle parts, but I'm going to tell you here's how you start and here's how you end. You begin and you end with the gospel. You've got to begin with the gospel because this is a scary thing. See, I don't want to look at my heart because what if I find something that's not nice? What, what if I find out that I really am deceitful, that, that what I thought were my noble motives were really profoundly influenced by this garbage? Okay, where do you get the courage to even begin the process? It begins with the gospel.
Jeremiah 17.9 says, Who can know the heart? Jeremiah 17.10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart. See, the Lord already knows. God already knows your heart. And the wonderful thing, we, we talked about this last week, but you just, if you go back a few verses in, in Galatians 4, verse 9, it says, Now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God. This is the heart of the gospel. You have been known by God. God knows you. He knows you and he loves you. He accepts you as you are. He, anything that you find in this whole process of searching your heart, he knows it already. Any conclusion you think that you have reached, he's already reached that conclusion. And he, he knows more profoundly and more deeply why you do what you do. He knows you're, you're, where you're twisted. He knows where you're noble. He knows all that and he loves you. And so the courage comes by saying, no matter what I find, nothing will disqualify me from fellowship with God. Nothing will make me too ugly that he can't accept me. So the death of Christ on the cross for us tells us that we are so bad that only the death of Jesus would save us. But at the same time, we're so loved, so dearly loved, that God gladly gave his son to die for us. That's where you get the courage to begin the process. And that's also where you get the solution at the end of the process. Because the answer to your root problems, and I feel pretty confident saying this, whatever your root problems are, you're going to find the answer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. What do the Galatians need, right? Let's use them as a test case. What do they need? They had this deep desire to be liked this desire to be made much of, desire to be valued. And that's what the false teachers were doing. They were stroking that for him. How do you counteract that? You look at the gospel. You say, you, you, forget, forget these teachers. They, they, oh, they like you? Great. You know what? God loves you. God has, has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you that he might redeem you for relationship with him. You want to talk about being, feeling special? I'm talking about feeling loved and feeling that approval, someone being zealous for you. I mean, that's the whole gospel right there. And, and, and you filled up in your heart with the love of God for you, and all of a sudden the love of people for you doesn't feel so important. And what do you need what, if, what, for your root issues? Well, again, I don't know what your issues are, but you need the gospel. If, if you've got problems with anxiety or anger, or identity issues, uh, if you are afraid, or you are envious, or you're bitter. What you need, once you get down to that root, what you need then is to apply the gospel to that root. What we really need is to know that we are loved and accepted by God, reconciled to Him by faith alone. And to the degree that that seeps into your life and trickles down to the root, you experience more and more freedom. Freedom from the subconscious control that your heart has over you, acting out of all these wounds. So, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, what you need, first of all, is to believe the gospel, to receive it in your heart, to get reconciled to God, admit that you don't have a problem sorted out, you need him to forgive you, and begin the journey of walking by faith with him. But, but if you're a Christian, you see, you're not done. You're, you're, your work is far from over. Your job is to get to know your heart. So, begin pulling on those strings. 
As issues come up in your life, don't just stay on the surface. Don't project the, real, don't project the issues on the non-issues, on the other people. Start looking at yourself. Start pulling those strings, asking the why questions, and follow where those lead until you get to the root problems. And do it with confidence because you know that at the end of that string, you're going to find a God who loves you, a, a Savior who died for you, and who wants to bring you freedom. Let's pray. Father, this is clearly um, the sort of thing that's going to take uh, a process. It's going to take some time for us to get to know ourselves. And we don't want to do it in any sort of um, self-serving way, as if we are so important that that we need to know, you know, that we're going to have to gaze at our navels until we can come to some epiphany. No, we, we're doing it because you're important. Because we love you and we want to serve you and we want to, we want to live rightly and we recognize that our hearts are deceitful and that you know our hearts and that if we let you show us more about ourselves, we can be liberated from our sin and follow you. Well, Father, give us the courage to pursue our own hearts, to pursue self-knowledge. That we might see our sin and repent of it and be healed and experience freedom. We pray this, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.